from Relay FM. This is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode number 59, recorded December 13th, 2023. I am your master of ceremonies, Jason Snell. And with me, as always, is Julia Alexander, Director of Strategy at Parrot Analytics. Hi, Julia. Hey, Jason. How are you? A uh, little, little sick, but getting better. So if people wonder if I'm a little scratchy or something like that, that's why. So I'm the sick one this time. I know it's so rare that you're the sick one. You was, yeah. you were just telling me how often have you been sick, Jason, since 2020? Twice in the entire pandemic era. Uh, this is the second time I've been sick. So crazy. Your uh, immune system cold. should be studied. I think I just am isolated and I work in my house and I never see anybody. I think that's probably more of it. But um, but hey, we're here to do a whole episode and and. Here's the amazing thing. I think we're just going to, even though it's the end of the year, I think we're just going to do another regular episode in two weeks, mm-hmm. right? Like, yep. that's that's interesting, right? On the uh, So we'll be back here on the 28th for another episode. We're not, we're not skipping. We're not, nope. you know, pre-recording. We're just going to, we'll just show back here after after the holidays. Jason uh, actually, and I clearly have a lot of holiday stuff happening <laughs> that we were both free. I, I do. I do have a lot, but I'm done with it all. Um, on the 27th. So I can, uh, I'm ready. I've got that little time between Christmas and New Year's where I'm not feeling at all. Mostly my kids are coming back here and we're going to get a little time with my daughter in the house. She Aww. isn't here very often. So it's going to be nice. Can nesting. I tell you what I'm doing on the 27th? I'm very excited. Yes, please. So my friends and I, every year, we decide to do an insane double feature. So last year we did Babylon and Puss in Boots, which was great. And this year we're doing Ferrari into Wonka on the 27th. And I'm very excited. Huh. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds nice. So it'll be, it'll be very fun. It'll be a day at the movies. That's good. That's a good thing to do with the holidays is go to the movies. Yeah. I think. Exactly. Um, before we start talking about our main topics, I wanted to do a little bit of follow up. A listener, an anonymous listener sent this in. Uh, just pointing out something we've been talking about, about those Pixar movies that didn't get theatrical releases during the pandemic and after where Disney Plus was sort of the focus for Disney. So they put all this stuff on Disney Plus and uh, sent in a story about how um, Soul, Turning Red and Luca, three very good, I would say, Pixar movies are all going to get theatrical releases. So the, Disney is going to put them in theaters uh, it's Soul in January, Turning Red in February, and Luca in March, and that will be accompanied by uh, some shorts as well as is traditional for Pixar. Um, I I don't know how well it's going to do for them, but I love that they're doing this because I remember at the time, like the director of Turning Red, they had like a screening in San Francisco or something that she could go to, but basically, um, they missed their theatrical and audiences missed the opportunity to see these movies on a big screen. And like I said, they're good movies. They, they really are good movies. So I'm glad that they're going to get a chance and that if you have seen them on Disney plus or haven't even had a chance to see them yet, you too can go to a movie theater early next year and see them. And who knows, maybe, I mean, Disney already made them, right? So maybe they'll make some extra money from this and maybe that'll be good. But I, I, I think it's an interesting story that those, those movies that didn't get the theatrical are going to get a little bit of time in the spotlight early next year. I think it's also just extremely smart for two reasons. One is what Jason just said, which is if you haven't seen it yet, there is a opportunity to watch them on a big screen and make them feel more event-like and you get out in the cold weather or you get out when you've got a bit of downtime and so you go and watch a movie. But two, 
kids love the movies they love, they will watch those movies again and again. We see this reflected often in the Disney plus Nielsen data that we get every single week um, from the top 10. You look at where Disney really dominates and it's in the film category where you see some of these films kind of play again and again, like Frozen or Rwanda or whatever it is. Um, but also, which we also kind of see in the new Netflix data dump, which we will get to in a little bit, I'm sure. But, um, oh, yeah. you know, kids love what they love and parents like the idea of going and experiencing things in new ways with their kids and finding things to do with their kids that takes them out, but is not necessarily too expensive. So bringing these movies that they already love, which means they know they'll have a good time, they know that they'll enjoy it to a theater and really having that one-off experience really just cement some of that adoration for the Pixar and Disney brand in a way that like I don't think these are going to be massive revenue generators for for Disney but I do think it will kind of elicit that love affair again for some of the brands that Disney has kind of left off to the wayside over the last little bit so I think it's you know also like why not right like if you have them and you want to go be in theaters and it's not going to cost you too much you're not going to have to market it a huge amount you're only going to have it for a limited time you know that the the theaters are hurting and they want more um films especially with the strikes coming out which is a big or excuse me the, especially with the strikes that happened and yeah. therefore impacting some of the slate going next that, year which obviously strike is a big bubble component happening, right yeah right it's a big component of this if you have the titles and you can turn them into f- these feel good moments for families and for fans of Pixar and Disney animation why not yeah do it and i will also say that um i had this experience a few years ago the um the san francisco chronicle used to have a kids blog a blog about parent about parenting basically Mm -hmm. um and they did screenings of classic children's movies at a Hmm. theater and this is much more common in regular movie theaters now, but this was a, this was like a repertory theater where you could get like pizza and popcorn and beer and drinks. And like, it was a full on, like sit at tables, food and movies it, it encouraged kind of experience like an Alamo draft house, except this was before that was everywhere. Um, or at least in lots of places. And, oh, and we watched, I'm going to say, I think it was Kiki's Delivery Service. It might have been My Neighbor Totoro, but it was one of those Miyazaki's. My kids knew it, knew the movie. They loved the movie. But we went to the theater, had pizza, had popcorn, had soda. It was amazing. Just a yeah. great fun day out with the kids. So if you've got... Uh, if you got kids or you're a kid at heart, I like I think this is a great opportunity. I, I would love to go and I, I'm hoping to go, especially Turning Red, which is my favorite of these. And I know that I it's, love uh, it speaks Red. directly to you as somebody yeah. who is from Toronto. Uh, <laughs> but Soul is also amazing. And I liked Luca, um, the third of those. But like, I, I would love to see these in a theater, especially if I can have that kind of fancy these days theater experience where there's maybe like a nice chair and I got some food and maybe a beer and like that, that sounds like a lot of fun. So I hope people will check it out because these are good Mm -hmm. movies. They are. Mm -hmm. All right. You mentioned it. We got to talk about it. Big news from Netflix. Netflix released, and I am not making this up, a spreadsheet. What's on the spreadsheet is very interesting, but I love that it's literally just here is a 700 kilobyte Microsoft Excel file from Netflix. And what's on it? The 18 more than 18,000 most watched titles on Netflix 
over the first six months of this year, covering more than 99% of all viewings on the platform, which, by the way, will show you the, the, the power lot where like there are the ones that are incredibly popular and then very rapidly it kind of falls off and then you've got everything that's down sort of in the 100,000 views and below 100,000 views, there's almost nothing. I mean, there may be a lot of titles down there, but certainly it's less than a 1% of the total views on the platform. So this is for for so many years, as I've been talking about this back to when I was talking about it with Tim Goodman, Netflix is the, you know, they've been opening up, they got their top 10 list, they've got some disclosures, there's a bunch of other stuff going on, uh, where they've given more information. But like, I feel like this is a little out of left field and kind of amazing, which is Netflix just I mean, it's not going to tell you per episode. It doesn't have demographics. It's got a lot of uh, it, it's very specific in what they're releasing. But in the end, they are telling you here are the top 18,000 most watched sh- shows and movies on Netflix over a six month period earlier this year. Go to town, like do with it as you will. Uh, really fascinating. I mean, right. Like, did did we expect them to do this level of disclosure? No. This came out of left field and I heard from, um, and by heard, I mean, I watched CNBC and Alex Sherman, who's a great media reporter was on it. And he was saying on CNBC that he heard from people really connected to kind of creators and producers in Hollywood that they weren't given a heads up. Like they were kind of given (laughs) the night before day of heads up, that they were going to release this data. And so no one really saw this coming. Um, I, before I get into kind of my, my quick thoughts on it, I do think it's really funny that for years, for years, everyone's been like, Netflix doesn't release enough data. And they were really mad. And now they're really mad because Netflix has released a lot of data. data, And the data is very hard to parse, especially if you are not someone who spends your days um, like like I do. Jason is very well versed in this or people who are just typical data um, analysts or um, kind of media reporters understanding the key context questions to ask for or to look for within data like this. I mean, we're talking about more than 18,000, I think it's 18,000, like 208 um, um, rows in Excel, right? Like that's kind of what you're looking at. And so what's interesting about the data is you're getting a, like the term that Ted Sarandos used a lot was snapshot, right? Like you're getting a snapshot of viewer activity on the platform globally within those six months. So what does that mean? It means that you're not getting cumulative data. So for example, Wednesday, uh, the the show about Wednesday Adams, which Anna Ortega came in, I think like second or third on this data sheet that we got, but is actually one of the most watched, if not the most watched, maybe it might be first or second um, English speaking program on Netflix. And so the fact that it was number third behind uh, The Night Agent and, and, some other, and another title speaks to the fact that it had premiered in 2022. So we did not get the cumulative viewership right. hours. We got the the specific viewership hours within those six months. Um, we also don't have context like country of origin or language. You can go in and do it yourself. This is something that I've been doing is really just adding some of these metadata tags. We don't have... Um, well, from 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 first glance, I should say, you don't really get access into completed views, which is something that Netflix has been using for the top 10. And that's a really important metric because Netflix really values the completed view 
of a, or the completion of a series rather, or the completion of a film. If we remember from years ago when Netflix still wasn't giving out too much data, they, it, we had learned that they had three groups of consumers, right? There were beginners, watchers, and completers. The beginners watched about two minutes of a program. The watchers watched about 70% of a series or film and the completers got to about 95%. And so the completion rate is really important for Netflix. And right. we don't really have that here. The completion rate also gives us a stronger apples to apples comparison. So if you think about some of the shows, like if you look at the top 100 shows, so I think 31% were foreign language of the 31%. So 31 titles, I think it worked out to be like 15 were Korean, 16 were Spanish, and like one or two were Japanese, if I remember, or three were Japanese, if I'm, I'm, I'm messing up the numbers, but I'm just going off memory. And so when we think about that context, it makes it seem like Spanish and Korean content's really popular on Netflix, and it is to an extent. You've got a lot of really strong K-dramas and um, Spanish telenovelas that reach audiences globally, but these shows also tend to be about much longer because of the episodes, the length of those episodes, and some of the eight-episode shows that Netflix does. So all of these contextual things are not within the data set. But Jason, those are some of, some of my key initial takeaways from some of what's missing from the data. And I'm sure that we'll get into what's what's interesting. But I'm curious what you thought might was really interesting from if, if you were able to look at it at all. I mean, I did open it. I, I cracked open my Microsoft Excel and I uh, I love that they have a little header on it. That's very nice of them. I don't know. I mean, one of the things, like I said before, is that how quickly the fall off uh happens right. right like this is the classic and ben thompson wrote about this on stratechery today the yeah. idea that uh with so many when you when you've got something of the scope of netflix um and you have essentially let's call it unlimited options what happens is that you know it, your top 20 percent i mean this is this is the case with podcasts too i've found where I, I know i've said this before that like this podcast is probably in the top like three percent two percent of podcasts because there are lots of podcasts but most of them are listened to by almost nobody that's just the truth and the ones that are listened to by enormous numbers that are far more than our numbers that's a small group you know you have millions of podcasts but it's really those 20 or 100 or 200 right. who are are there and you see that with Netflix here too that there are um you know you rapidly i looked at some of my favorite like catalog shows and it's like oh you know they're down in, it's number number 900 right like it's like it's, it's people are watching it but not very many people because it's been out for years and all of that so that struck me i also what you said about not knowing you know this isn't letting us see inside netflix's mind right it, it is it is a snapshot that they're comfortable sharing that imparts some information without necessarily giving away the crown jewels or what it definitely isn't is like the netflix spreadsheet that says should i cancel this show or renew right. it and right. and i was struck by that because shadow and bone which got canceled season two placed 30 what well it's not 32nd because there's seven uh so what is 32 it pl placed 25th on the list 193 million hours viewed pretty good didn't get a pickup now but that's the thing is we don't know right we don't know what the season one number was and if this is a huge drop-off we don't know the costs of the very expensive tv show we don't know the uh abandonment rate of the season right it may be that lots of people started it and they didn't even get through it so you know they're not gonna watch season three or probably not um we don't know any of those things right this is a raw number that tells us some interesting things and I think goes, you know, part of me thinks this is also 
the thing started by the uh, by the WGA when they made their deal that involved actually rewarding shows that have streaming successes. This is sort of the all right, well, we'll show you what a success is. And most things obviously are not going to be a success. And, uh, right. and so we get that here. But anyway, I, I was just, that was one of the things that struck me is looking at, you can look at shadow and bone season two and see its numbers. And it came out, you know, it was, it, it came out in March. So it's only a three month, uh, three and a half month, uh, number here. And it's in the top 15 and it still didn't get picked up for season three. And that means, you know, that just is the strong implication. Like just because it's got the raw numbers doesn't mean that it's uh, fundamentally a success or a failure for Netflix. It's way more complicated than that. Yeah. And I think that's what speaks to some of the strength that Netflix has. So if you look at the total 18,000 plus list, 45% of it is licensed programming. 54% is original. If we look at some of the top licensed titles within the top 100 there are multiple seasons of breaking bad you've got um suit the blacklist in there suit season one of <laughs> course and and this is the question i think a lot of people will have so we'll just address it right now suits remember was back weighted to the let to the latter half of the year so we're really going to see yeah. the strength of suits in the next yeah. report but that's generated it was sometime. still top 60 even even in january through june it was top 60 so it's right it's pretty good for a random usa network show right and it's right. gonna next time when they do the next spreadsheet it's gonna be way up there right and and what i but i think what's really interesting about that piece of data that was coming out was this idea of rotating libraries there's this idea that you know if we look at it it's not that people are watching the same show over and over and over again and that's kind of what they're coming back for there are certainly groups that do that like there are people who watch sitcoms over and over again like friends or seinfeld and, and that's its own situation but what netflix has very smartly discovered is that if they have this rotating library of licensed shows that come in for, you know, 12 months, 18 months, then go out and bring on other title, even non-exclusively because they have the preferred interface and they're the preferred yeah. platform. Yeah. They can really turn some of those shows, not just into hits for them, which is awesome, but they can also turn them into strong churn reducers. And those shows also then peak interest in some of the other originals that Netflix has that is already through the amortization period. And so therefore, it's just creating strong revenue for Netflix kind of being there. Now, the big question that comes out of this data, because we can see how much revolving libraries really impact what consumers are watching, it's this question of, well, should Netflix license out some of his older series that are just sitting there, which we're now seeing all these other companies too. A um, couple of key factors about what might impact this. One, and I don't necessarily take this at face value. I think it's probably a good go-to answer. I don't necessarily think it's the correct answer. Um, but when Ted Sarandos was asked by my pot colleague, Matt Bellany, on the town podcast um, yesterday, if he would license out some other content. This was also asked on the press call that happened yesterday uh, uh, yesterday as well, by the time that we're recording this, which is Wednesday. Um, there was the answer of, well, we don't need to license out content because what we've seen is that when content comes to Netflix, we can turn it into this mega hit because of our scale, because of our recommendation system, which is true. And so his argument is that if we license out our originals, we're not going to see the same effect. But I think that disregards the true purpose of of licensing. So yeah. if you're if you are NBC Universal, right, you license out suits. The expectation should not be that all of a sudden 
if you have a new suit spinoff two years from now, there's going to be a massive audience that follows through to that. The expectation should be that because of this program having an impact on Netflix, you can charge a much stronger premium upfront for access to that content. Now, if you're Netflix, the question, therefore, is not, are you going to license this title like Orange is New Black or House of Cards? to Peacock or Hulu or or Max and then see increased viewership on Netflix for it, which we've kind of seen happen in the reverse with HBO and some of the HBO titles when they're on Netflix. But is it worth the pure profit, uh, excuse me, pure margin revenue that is going to happen when you license out those titles versus the cost of keeping them on the platform once they're through the amortization periods, once they're paid off, when you're keeping them there and they're not necessarily generating any interest. So what we can see from some of this data is that Orange's New Black season one was sitting at, I think, like rank 361. So out of 18,000 titles, not bad for a 10-year-old show. But the rest of the season, you know, much further down that list, which speaks to people who might start a season because it was recommended to them after the night agent or whatever it might be, and then they decide they're not really interested in it. The other aspect that comes into this, which we don't have information on based on um, the spreadsheet, is what Netflix actually owns. So you have to remember that a lot of these titles that Netflix had as originals back when they first started were not owned, but they're not a Netflix studio project. So if we look at House of Cards, I I can't remember the production company. I think it was a, a, a media, I think it was yeah, Media Rights MRC, Council. Yeah. Yeah. Is MRC. And then if we look at Orange is the New Black, that is Lionsgate, right? So when we look at some of these titles, the question is, you know, can Netflix even do anything with them? Is it their right to be able to do something with it? The answer could be yes. They could have worked out back end deals. The answer could be no. Lionsgate still maintains control of it, uh, of, a, of a title like Orange is the New Black. But all of these questions that we want to really dig into that will speak to the overall value, the overall content strategy, the overall investment strategy that we're seeing happening with Netflix is really difficult to answer. And the other thing, I was just talking to a client who brought this up, uh, and I thought it was a very interesting question, is where is all the money they're investing in going, right? If they're investing $16 billion a year on average in, on the originals, how what what is that what is that uh, what is the efficiency of that spend you know is it really working for them in a way that makes sense or are we seeing this kind of push to doing more licensed content and acknowledgement that we don't need to be spending 16 billion or even 8 9 billion on original content we can be spending 5 billion on original content and increase our licensing stra- uh, uh, investment to really ins- ensure that our churn rate remains low in the US and we kind of have this strong global support system for our original investments and more localized programming all of these are the really big questions that Netflix's internal team is looking at so when people when when executives like Ted Sarando say this is the data our teams are looking at. There's a big asterisk on it, right? There's like, yes, but also they know what Jason was saying. They know the cost of the programming. They know the completion rate of the programming. They know the episodes where people dropped off. They understand the efficiency of the spend on that programming. They understand the consumer journey of the platform. Like this data sheet does not tell us what people watched after they watched The Mother or right. You People. We don't really know what they did next, and therefore what is the referral value or the retention value of some of these titles, what is the acquisition value of some of these titles. So all of those questions are still up in the air, and I think what that really reiterates as we go through what the data does not have, and I will be very clear, there's a lot in this data. Once you add the metadata tags, which is a months-long initiative that we're undertaking, Hmm. once you go through and add a bunch of the stuff, you can start doing some really strong contextual analysis. But What it really showcases to Wall Street, to journalists, to creators, is that the reach of Netflix is going to be greater than anything you're going to get on any other streaming service because they're willing to put out these numbers in a way that other companies are not. And what it reiterates is that 
not all these shows are going to be super popular, but if they are popular, they are absolutely massive. So if you're with Netflix, you have the opportunity to achieve that potentially more so than any other uh, um, um, platform you might work with. So the big question, and Jason, I ask you this question, just do the rest of the company follow suit? Is there now an industry pressure to then say, including from creators or other people within actual Hollywood, as well as media reporters, for companies like Disney or Amazon to start releasing some of that information? Yeah, I think, I mean, the pressure is clearly there. If Netflix is doing it, I think that um, some of them probably will and some of them probably won't. Like, I try to imagine Apple releasing any disclosure, disclosure at all that is not legally required, and I can't see it. Right. Like they'll disclose whatever is required in the in the 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 SAG-AFTRA and WGA contracts. But like I can't see Apple putting out a, a numbers spreadsheet probably right now, an Excel spreadsheet. I just can't see it. Um, but I think that there's, this is um, there's going to be more of this because there clearly people want more disclosure than what the companies have been willing to do up to now. So I'm sure there will be more of it. Um, but I wanted to ask you. Uh, about something you said. So you said about rotating the libraries. You wrote about mm-hmm. this in your puck column that I'll put a link to in the show notes. Um, and and the idea that you've got an old favorite, like, I mean, Suits is a good example, right? You, you, bring, you bring something in, the Netflix algorithm works on it. You've got a huge Netflix audience. They find it. And they're not always going to find it at the level of Suits, but you bring it in and they have it and they watch it. And then, you know, it, it, it settles back down again. But if you, if you are carting in new content every year, uh, every quarter in and out and in and out and shuttling in some new stuff that, that gives some fresh things for your Netflix audience to see that they haven't seen before. It makes them more satisfied that they're going to keep finding things on Netflix because Netflix is out there finding stuff for them. There's all of this strength in it. And then you you mentioned like, okay, so Ted Sarandos, are you going to license your content? And he's like, oh, I don't see why we have to do it. And it struck me that it's similar in some ways to their, uh, are you going to put things in movie theaters where they're just like, Netflix is, it's going so good for Netflix that they feel like there are lots of their values that, that they just don't need to compromise on. Uh, ads wasn't one of them, it turns out, when they hit that bump. But the rest of them, at the same time, I think, you know, the time may come where they feel like, oh, you know, we really should do that. Right now, I actually think, as I do with theatrical, they are spurning revenue in order to keep complete control over their priority, which is Netflix streaming service. And so they are, as we've talked about before, spurning um, theatrical revenue that they could do a theatrical run like Apple is doing with the two films that Apple's got in theaters right now. And, uh, they, they don't want to do that. They'll do limited runs to please creators, but that's about all they care about. And then licensing their content out is the other thing that struck me. It's like, you know, there are some people who are never going to find that show on Netflix, believe it or not. But if it has a show that, or, or shows that are like it somewhere else, Maybe. And I don't know whether that's, is there Netflix horror stuff that could go on Shudder? Is there, I mean, does, if Peacock, because NBC Universal had the sci-fi channel, if Peacock's got a lot of sci-fi, could they go and pick up um, Dark and Travelers from Netflix and get people to see them on Peacock who might not otherwise have ever watched them? Or on Paramount Plus from people who are in between Star Treks and want to find another sci-fi show to watch. And, you know, Halo is coming and Star Trek is coming, but they're not here now. Could you rotate in one of those sci-fi shows from Netflix? I don't know, but like, 
I think you could, and I think it might be good. I think people might discover it surrounded by like content somewhere else. And like, I get Ted Sarandos being like, you know what? We got other fish to fry. But at the same time, it, it must be nice being Netflix, I guess. It must be nice being the king because uh, I do think it would work. And I do think they could make money off of doing that. And instead, they're like, no, we would rather have uh, travelers. Uh, season one watched by, you know, have 19 million views of those in a six month period, just sort of sitting in our, our library from people right. who stumble across it, which is, I don't know, I, I, I just, I really believe that. So I, that's what I think is, is that really where they are is that they can afford to just ignore some other revenue streams right now because they're just riding so high? Yeah, I think I think part of it is exactly what you said. Like part of it is they don't need to do it. Um, Why yeah. license out to competitors if it it might even help some competitors right there's a show that didn't do well on netflix but it fits better from an audience perspective with max and all of a sudden that does really well and it's engaging a max audience at the risk of not engaging a netflix audience again that risk is low but you know why bother if you don't have to but two and i think this is really the big one is the question of you know one ownership less of a question now is netflix produces more of its own stuff but two that amortization period of when can we really start to look into licensing this off in a way that makes sense? And what are our plans for the literal financial status of this of, of, of this title? Um, Netflix produces a lot in a very short amount of time, and they're very good at their financing structure. And so I think that's also a question of, you know, how much do they want to do? How much are they able to do? How much are they willing to do? I don't doubt that eventually Netflix will license if for a few reasons. One, as we're seeing with some, or, or before I even get into that, um, just on that fact about kind of ownership and the financial aspect, the amortization, this is why you see a lot of the companies like Warner and Disney, Paramount, NBC Uni, um, in, uh, licensing out old titles, right? Like they're done. Like they they own those shows, they produce those shows, They those, those shows are completely paid off. Um, there's an aspect of, we don't need these titles because we have a deep, deep catalog. Netflix does not have a deep, deep catalog. It is building a catalog. It uses the licensed shows to kind of support the originals. Now it's the licensed shows are becoming kind of the key draw and the originals are almost supplementing the license programming. Um, but if we look at kind of the, the future strategy of Netflix, I really do think, um, one, there's no reason to hoard content the way that players have tried to remember that when competitors tried to hoard content it was based on the idea that their program was differentiated enough that it would draw significant audiences and act in a either strong acquisition or retention or for ad purposes engagement uh aspect and not all titles do that there's no title is essentially equal and so hoarding content doesn't make sense especially when it affects your overall um pure margin revenue to the idea of what Netflix's brand is is a big question, and I think that's something that it's trying to figure out. You know, we often say, and by we, I mean the industry, that Netflix is the CBS of streaming. I mean, CBS is was crowned the top uh, highest rated network for the 15th year in a row this past year, so it's not an insult. But if you ask somebody what the brand of CBS is, you, they might say procedural, but it's really difficult to kind of nail down. It's almost middle America, right? Which is not, again, not a bad thing. It's it's actually a very, very high achievement. It means that you have got really strong reach. But I do think Netflix trying to figure out what its brand looks like could be used in some kind of curated fast fashion. And then three, we're assuming that Netflix remains number one. And it certainly seems that case. But 
the main reason Netflix is able to operate the way it is is because the delta between it and its competitors is so far. So if those competitors start to really pick up steam, whether it's via sports being integrated into their streaming services, whether it's through other initiatives like games or whatever it is, all of a sudden Netflix does need to kind of increase that investment in the type of content that it's that it's creating and in the type of uh, experiences it wants to kind of curate. And you need to create stronger spending margin uh, in order to do that. And so taking some of your content that might not necessarily be useful to you, but could be at least sold elsewhere, like a fast platform, uh, a YouTube, AVODs uh, uh, channel, whatever it might be, all of a sudden becomes much more intriguing once those financial situations are, or financial constraints are kind of acknowledged, um, which again, Netflix is nowhere near. But I do think some of the stuff feels very inevitable. And so it seems very likely that Netflix will eventually start licensing out in some capacity. Um, I just don't know when that is, but I, I can't see them holding on to everything forever. Alternatively, if they build a free, you know, build their own fast, right? Build build a free right. tier right. But that is that is beneath, right? Because remember, the ad, the ad tier of Netflix is a paid tier. So they could do a fast, essentially a free tier with the stuff that is not the crown jewels and which is, you know, maybe initial seasons of a bunch of stuff but maybe even full runs of some shows that are just not being watched and the the downside of that is that you create a a product that's compelling at all but i think that a lot of the fast tv channels have shown there is a way to create a pretty compelling free product even if it is not everything that's on netflix that is with content that has got some good catalog and some good good fits thematically with other things that are people want to watch I don't know uh, whether they want to do that or not, uh, that they could be reserving for that. But if they don't want to build that, they, yeah, they could certainly license it out. It'll be fun to see what happens with them. It's hard to hard to beat them. Right. And and you, you wrote another article that that says something similar, which is uh, I know we've touched on it here, which is, you know, who benefits the most from Netflix licensing something like Suits and having a hit? And the answer is Netflix. Right. <laughs> that's the that's. That's who benefits most. It doesn't. They're not going back to Peacock seeking other USA shows so much as they're just uh, watching it on Netflix, and it makes them feel better about Netflix. Hard to beat Netflix. They are, they are number one, right? They're the yeah. they're they're number one, number one for a reason. Hard to beat number one. You know, it's a, it's a real challenge when they're when they're buying. They're your customer and your competitor, right? It makes it so hard. Um, I yeah. I tweeted um you know shocking to everyone i tweeted um recent uh, today a thread that was kind of here's the questions that we need to be asking from both sides of this equation and the line that listeners will have heard me say over and over and over again is that it is easier for netflix to license the suits than it is for peacock to create a stranger things the unspoken sentence there is that it's also easier for netflix to license the suits than it is for netflix to create a stranger things again right it is very difficult to kind of continue hitting gold Mm -hmm. and so what really needs to be to be said here is that and i'm I'm just i'm just gonna read part of this thing i wrote for puck a few weeks ago which is um there are only a couple of major players who truly want and arguably need access to those long-running dramas and sitcoms even on a non-exclusive basis there is a premium for potentially achieving that level of success and while it's still difficult to to determine what shows have the greatest chance of sparking a suits like phenomenon the value for licensors is in charging more up front to get the best result from that potential of interest not in trying to convert that audience into new fans of old IP. But in doing so, 
a lot of these companies need to understand that what they're doing is 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 acknowledging what they did a few years ago that they did not like, which is you are giving Netflix ammo to keep its churn rate increasingly low. Remember that the streaming battles will end up becoming a churn battle, not an acquisition battle. It'll be about preventing churn and increasing engagement and building those those utilities of necessity. And so the more that you license out to Netflix, even on a non-exclusive basis, the stronger Netflix becomes. So what these companies like Disney Warner, Paramount are hoping is that as they license out to Netflix and Amazon types, they can then, and, and they bring in that kind of pure margin revenue, they can then invest in those original types of content, including some licensed content to really build out the necessity of their services. That includes sports, that includes games, that includes non-passive um, entertainment uh, aspects of this of this bundle. But the problem is that you're hoping that while you do that, you're building up in a way that Netflix, that you're going to catch up to Netflix instead of Netflix also looking at $6.57 billion in free cash flow to invest while keeping its churn rate increasingly low. So therefore, the, co- the, the, the cost of, a, 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 of acquisition for a customer, which, you know, the SAC, um, as well as marketing costs can actually be lower to load on Netflix's front because they're not necessarily fighting as hard to keep some of those customers. This is the, in my opinion, most important factor. This is not just what are the next quarter or next year KPIs, you know, for distribution teams. It's not just next quarter, next year profits, which of course companies who are publicly traded companies have to think about. It is what is the long-term play of this if you're a company that wants to be a distributor and a supplier the way that Netflix is? How much do you give Netflix? How much do you look and say, we are helping Netflix achieve levels of engagement and, and user activity that is taken away from us? And it's not because it's not it's, it's, it's not because we don't it's, it's not because they have our shows exclusively. They have them non-exclusively, but they have the scale and they're continuing to build that scale while reducing churn. People inherently want one easy to use interface. They want one easy to use platform that has the vast majority of what they want. And so they will stick there. This is why Hulu is increasingly important to Disney plus as opposed to the other way around. And so that's just something I think about often. And I, I was going through those Netflix numbers and you're seeing how strong friends and the office performs on Netflix globally, even outside the U S because they have, they, they have um, those rights in a lot of countries, still a lot of regions. It's like, just remember that while these companies need to license because they shouldn't be hoarding content and there's only a few players who really want that content so they they will license to them just it is easier to license the suits than it is to create a stranger things even for the company that created stranger things and so that is going to be kind of the core piece of this puzzle going forward it uh, when you talk about suits, uh, one of the things that also strikes me is there's this question of how, what lesson do you learn from that content, right? It's the idea. Netflix looks at it and says, "Okay, people liked suits, right? Like what what did they like about it?" And what I wonder is, does Netflix say, "Okay, let's develop something like suits." Or does it look at that and say, it's not our bag. It's not the kind of stuff we develop. Because uh, I know for a fact that somebody is saying, let's develop something more like Suits. And it's back at NBC Universal, where I believe they there was a report this week about how they're going to try to go back into sort of the USA Network blue sky kind of thing. Because the success of some of these shows on streaming from that era where they had the shows of a particular kind of tone, including Suits and Monk. And a bunch of other stuff like that. Interesting era for USA Network. Uh, have some resonance with audiences in the streaming era. 
Um, but th- that I, I'm fascinated by that idea, right? Of like, if I'm Netflix and I know that Suits did really well for me, do I say, "Hey, let's make stuff like Suits," or do I say, "Let's let NBC Universal make stuff like Suits, and then in a few years we'll just license it from them"? I don't know. I don't know. It's a funny, it's a funny world. But I do wonder because I'm not, I'm not positive that. Um, that Netflix can make suits either, right? We talked about like it's they've long, tried. It's long it's, running. It's, it's got lots of episodes. They just it, don't think that way. But it's also it's also I think people forget that Netflix has tried to do this. Netflix tried to make a typical sitcom with the ranch. Like Netflix looks yeah. at what works on broadcast and says we would like to do that. They literally hired Bella Bajaria, who was right. queen of this over NBC Universal and then uh, Universal Productions. They, they did one Universal. day at a time with Norman Lear. They have tried yeah. to do this. They will continue to try to do it. But it is very difficult to create these types of shows. And mm-hmm. so I don't think I mean, arguably like the night agent, right? Or or like like that is uh, their type, their their very CBS type show, which did extremely well for them. Wednesday is a CW show. Like it's it's those are show, shows that would work on broadcast and have worked extremely well on Netflix. So Netflix is clearly taking this data and investing in opportunities where it can create the same kind of television. But there's also a caliber and a cost with developing for right. a, a Netflix original that does not necessarily exist with the broadcast. You know, even look at the type of a superhero show that would exist on streaming. You're looking at an average of. 10 to 15 million an episode, probably. You look at what it was on the CW and it's like two to three million. Yeah. Like it, th- there's, yeah. there's a cost initiative. And so yeah, the boys I, I, cost I think, a lot more than the flash, right? I mean, right. Yeah. And I think it's not that Netflix won't invest in this type of original content. It is just an acknowledgement that there are beloved series that are popular that people and also time ceases to exist with streaming, right? Like people are still new to Breaking Bad. They're new to Mad Men. They're new to these types of shows. They're new to the Grey's Anatomy every year there's like new Grey's Anatomy fans who are finding it and are like I want to watch this yeah. and so if you're 20 seasons a- go for it yeah and if you're ABC CBS NBC you're like great we're going to continue producing this for broadcast we're making the vast majority of our revenue on these titles anyways and then we're going to license it for a strong premium to Netflix and if you're Netflix you're saying we would love to develop a Grey's Anatomy it will take us 15 years to yeah, do that and exactly. so we would like to also have Grey's Anatomy and so I think it's just being aware that Netflix is taking this information, they're hiring the right executives, they're hiring the right developers, uh, creative developers who can go in and do a lot of this work for Netflix as they build out. They're doing this in region-centric approaches, so they're finding the right telenovelas for um, Colombian audiences, they're finding the right K-dramas for Korean audiences. Like they, they are doing it region by region, but they also realize that they need time. And what they don't necessarily want to lose is, 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 is that low churn rate while they're building this out. So by bringing in those licensed titles that work globally, they're going to keep churn low, which means their revenue remains steady, consistent, and probably increases as they, as they bring in price increases. And because that churns low, it means it's more of a necessity. So you've got people paying more for it regardless. All of a sudden, now you can start investing. But it is like, it, it's just funny. I think people really forget that like Netflix has tried to do a lot of this and it yeah. just has not worked. Yeah, Netflix is powerful in lots of things, but that is not one of those areas where they have shown incredible ability to just uh build hits right they they do do it but like you can't just say that's why that's why suits that's why i brought it up right is like suits strikes me as the kind of show that netflix actually can't make 
And so it's yeah. great that it's a hit for them. But the lesson, and and I think it's very funny that NBC Universal takes the lesson of like, oh, suits, yeah, yeah, right, okay, and and they will make something, and they may put it on USA Network or on NBC or on Peacock or some combination thereof, and maybe it'll do well for them. But I also think in the back of my mind, yeah, and maybe after it's got five seasons, you'll license it to Netflix where it'll become a huge hit again. I don't know. Yeah. That may yeah. be how it works. And and if you're in NBC Universal, I mean that's the that's the um the give and take of having suits be a hit on Netflix is that it, it, it's your property but it's not your platform. And then, exactly. Well, yeah. All right, uh we have a little more to talk. I mean, that was a lot of Netflix talk, but there was a lot to talk about. So I I have no regrets. But I I do want to talk about um the fact that what happened happened, which is we talked about it and it happened. Hulu is now a tile in Disney Plus in the US, which is a big deal. Yep. It's a beta. You got to be a bundle subscriber to see it. It's currently only a single Hulu tile, although they said they're going to try to uh, pop it out into having, you know, the multiple tiles of other brands that are inside Hulu like FX. Um, but right now it is a Hulu tile. I guess there'll be an ABC tile and, you know, whatever else is is in there. Um, but I, I played around with it. I mean, it, it's fun it, it, to see, like, it would be much more convenient, right, to just flip over to Only Murders in the Building while I'm in Disney Plus. And that's the whole point is there's actually a lot of content I really love on Hulu. So having it be inside the Disney Plus app, ultimately, I can see why I might end up spending my time in the Disney Plus app where it's got both of those services together instead of having to flip back and forth between them. They also did a little bit of uh, press. They talked to my uh, my old colleague, Harry McCracken, uh, who is now at Fast Company about their, in- piece. their integration. It's, it's, it's really good. Although the one question he didn't ask that I would love an answer to is star has been integrated with disney plus outside of the u.s in many markets for a while now and so when their head of development says something about how oh hulu's got this kind of antiquated thing where they've got all these different uh like five pieces of art for each title and disney plus has like eight or 12 and they're layered and they can be composited in different ways. And we had to do that for all of these. I thought, well, wait a second, aren't you doing that for a lot of this content already around the world? And I just don't know the answer. I don't know whether the U S app is somewhat different. I don't know whether the problem was that most of the content that's on a Hulu is not actually on star. It's a much larger library and they had to generate all that art. I don't, you know, I, I, it's obviously quite an achievement for them, but it is funny that in the U.S. you might be led to believe this is a dramatic change for Disney when, in right. fact, they've been playing this game outside of the U.S. for a while now. But it's there. I mean, I've been thinking about Disney a lot over the last like, five, six years of my life, but especially over the last few months. And I think there's a really interesting Disney story right as in not like a media story but as in just the story of disney which is that disney has always fought against being disney as it really adheres to technology so if we think about how disney was a film uh, animation studio that becomes a park right that's fine all of a sudden it becomes a television business through the capital city capital cities merger right so they get abc they get espn all of a sudden disney is now um equivalent with espn in a way that it would not have been 10 years ago disney acquires marvel under bob Iger, which just a few years earlier under um uh michael eisner who's the former ceo of disney said that marvel was too um uh, adult for for disney so but now marvel is disney at its core and then i was thinking about this with hulu right and this idea that people are like well it's not disney but what is disney like disney has always fought against itself in order to kind of move forward with technological um 
uh, production and as well as where culturally consumers are headed. And so as I was thinking about that and the decisions that Disney does with its mergers and acquisitions, I was thinking about how Hulu to me is kind of the vital lifeline of Disney streaming going forward. And, and, and here's my, here's why I think Disney plus um, so I, I have a, I have a theory about this. Um, uh, Ben Thompson has a much more eloquent version of it, which is just true of Ben Thompson, uh, in general. Okay. But, um, he, I refer to it as kind of event versus regularity or habit. He calls it event versus inventory. And I think it's this idea that what really drives your business model for a consumer subscription product is this idea of event versus inventory. So event would be something like an NFL game. It would be something that's very limited in nature, high impact, high volume audience. Inventory, or what I call regularity or, or, or habitual, is that licensed programming fare, right? It's kind of what you put on because it's just what you go to. It's it's a it's a circulating list of movies and TV shows, and it's just something that's always there. Um, their value is not necessarily equal but it's not necessarily um on a, 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 um one is not necessarily better or worse than the other it just depends on what you need and so when i look at the disney bundle and disney plus specifically disney plus is a niche platform that was not priced correctly that is trying to operate like a broad play scale platform and that's really difficult because at the end of the day Yes, what we're saying for niche is like families and Marvel and Star Wars fan, but it is niche. Um, you're getting people who have young kids who are much more excited by YouTube and Netflix, and therefore Disney is their third option. Um, you've got people who are growing out of Marvel and Star Wars fandoms. Those those fandoms are stagnating. And so it is a niche audience. It's an audience where you can charge probably $25 a month and people would pay. And so you could create a really strong product on it based on that. But Disney sees this as a broad play scale um, based product. And so from that perspective, what you really need, in my opinion, is access to the type of regular habitual programming that Disney Plus inherently cannot do because it's so event driven. Everything on Disney Plus that people pay attention to, because I bet if you if Disney were to release a data sheet like uh, Netflix did, the top performers would be movies that were in theaters some of the library collection of titles uh, of films, everything Marvel, Star Wars, and then everything else would be the delta between it would be huge. It would be barely, barely, barely watched. It's why Disney has basically canceled every new original it's brought out that's not part of Marvel and Star Wars. Um, and so that's a big churn issue. That is an issue of, well, we have an event-driven business and we are actually cutting down on the amount of events that we're putting out. We're doing less Marvel uh, Star Wars series. We're putting more movies back in theaters. And so you you need is Hulu. And Hulu is what creates your low churn rate that then allows you to invest in more original programming, invest in more license that you want to bring into the circle and expand that audience into creating habitual necessity audience. And we know this works because we've seen it internationally with Star, as Jason was saying, right? There's an aspect of this where it, it is a proven fact. It is going to increase the amount of times you open that app throughout the week. It's going to increase your session time, it's going to increase your overall engagement. All three things really important for Disney's ad business that they are really trying to bring apart. That is what Hulu has always been extremely advanced and very good at. So if you're trying to integrate that into Disney Plus, what you're trying to say is that we want to use our machine learning algorithmic capabilities to then bring this programming over to the Disney Plus side and really engage with that event style programming, which happens every single month that they're going to try to do and really supplement it with some of this habitual programming. And so I think 
there's all this murmur and chatter about how Hulu being integrated into Disney Plus is like, oh my God, someone think of the children. But this was really the only play Disney could do. If it wasn't through Hulu, they were just going to take back a bunch of their programming once it was sold and that from ABC, from Freeform, from FX and put it on Disney Plus regardless. The last thing I will say, which I think is very interesting and speaks to how careful Disney is being, but also how fast Disney is moving, is if you look at the Disney Plus tiles, as in what you can really click on, it's very Disney, right? It's like Marvel, Star Wars, National Geographic, which they own, Simpsons, which they own, um, Pixar, Disney, like animation. Very Disney. If you look at the tiles on Hulu, once you go into the Hulu section, it's like Nickelodeon. They don't know Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon's a Paramount brand. But they have that because they know that's what the vast majority of what their family audiences are coming to Hulu for. It's to watch some of this Nickelodeon programming. They have A&E, which I think Disney has a percentage of a, of a stake in. I'm not 100% sure. But they have all these non-Disney brands. And the idea is that this isn't just Disney. This is actually just TV, which is what Disney made right. the vast majority of its revenue on the media network's revenue back when it first merged with Capital Cities and kind of grew its TV business out into the cable business. And so what you're seeing is actually Disney realizing that we need to expand beyond Disney. We need to actually fight against the idea of Disney while supporting the idea of Disney to really expand past the broad audience who has a conception of what Disney is. And I think that's such an interesting play, but but I'm curious on your thoughts on it. Well, I mean, Disney plus right that's what it is mm-hmm. it, if you think of it in that way it's disney yes. plus and disney has shown with star overseas that disney the disney brand can expand marvel is not disney it's disney right but it's it's there's a disney brand tile in disney plus and then there's all the other tiles that's the plus so marvel star wars and hulu and there'll be some other stuff in there too and i you know i think it is the way it was launched was a little bit unfortunate but if you think right. back to that era, that was the era where everybody was scrambling to catch up with Netflix, where they realized they had to do this now and they were aggressive. And like, I think that was good. I think that that launching it then for the low price and spending all that money on content was the right decision for the time. And I know times changed and they've got to make different decisions now, but I think it was not a bad call to get the ball rolling. And yet when we're in this situation, they're going to buy out. Uh, the the other stakes in Hulu, they're going to own it. It's their content. They they get a lot of benefit from that content. Hulu's content has some really remarkably remarkably good stuff in it from a catalog standpoint and from a development executive standpoint. Like Disney's Disney is stronger with John Landgraf making shows for for Hulu and FX, right? Like it is he's really good at his job. Uh, they the so. Are we living in a world where the new season of Fargo premieres and people are like Disney Plus? It's like, yeah, and that's okay. I think it's okay. I think that Disney gets, as you said, redefined a lot and will continue yeah. to be redefined. And I think the family's aspect of it is always going to be a core part of Disney. Yes. But that the the plus, I I again say strongly implies the brand extension and the family of brands. And uh, not to go on a tangent, but I'll just say. Um, you know, when I went to, to, when you go to the restaurants at Disneyland, unless it's like the secret private one, like there's no alcohol, you go to Disney's California adventure and you go to a restaurant, you can have a beer, you can have wine. Um, and, and there was definitely a, a whole like, oh no, no alcohol in Disneyland kind of, kind of thing. But the fact is Disney expands and it becomes more things. It doesn't necessarily lose 
one of its aspects, but it can add other aspects. So I'm interested to see how it goes, obviously, but I think that we're starting in a, we're starting it now, right? Like here, here we go and, and we'll see where it goes from here. Um, and I think you touched upon something extremely important, which is that whereas Disney expands in its broad play for a streaming audience, Disney doubles down on the Disney brand in its other ventures, right? So in theaters, Pixar goes back to theaters. Disney Animation's big theatrical thing. Marvel and Star Wars are big theatrical plays again. In the parks where Disney's investing $60 billion over the next 10 years, it's bringing these big Disney IPs out to those parks and really creating those moments of intimate adoration again. But on the streaming side, which is a pure scale play, it's the idea of what TV was, right? Like, you know, one looked at the Disney portfolio on cable and was like, wow, isn't it weird that Disney owns a sport where there's like concussions every single day? I love football. I'm just pointing it out there, um, you know, or, yeah. or there's all this controversy. No, no. Everyone's just like, that's ESPN. It's owned by Disney. It doesn't matter. But because the DTC products are so branded and it's so brand associated, it's really difficult for Disney to kind of say, well, this is now us too, even though that's always been the case. The what's on Hulu has always been Disney's play. It's always been a cable play. And, and now they're integrating it with the Disney Plus side. And I think this, this concern also comes up with like HBO and Max. And it's this idea that there's an, a unique sense of ownership because you're seeing directly what you're supporting with your credit card dollars that was not necessarily there within cable, which was more of a, an access point for uh, an interface, right? You're paying for the access point. Um, and but But that's what it's going to become. You're effectively paying for an access point to various types of content, especially as more of these companies enter consolidation and as they increase their bundling opportunities, including third-party partnerships. And so I think this is just another unique moment for Disney as it really enters that next phase. And I think there, the more we kind of look at why Disney bought Hulu, or well, they had to, let's, let's be honest, they, yeah. they legally were bound to, but the more that what they can do with it, I do think it becomes an integral part to their U.S. operations for streaming where they have the strongest average revenue per user and where they really are competing first and foremost. And then as they take those lessons from Star, which is operating globally, really work together to create a unified machine it's uh it's one of the i mean these like there's such good stories that's why we do a podcast about this this is all just there's no there are no easy answers we've been saying that since episode one there's no easy answers here and if we had them we would they'd pass a lot of money but it is a uh it's fascinating to watch them go through the process and figuring out what what these companies these titans of industry in some ways are, are going to yeah. do in the in the 21st century it's just fascinating um speaking of which the other topic i wanted to mention today is what's up with paramount global so matt bellany reported about it uh last week it's been confirmed by uh the new york times and others that sherry redstone is talking to skydance which is the company run by david ellison who is larry ellison's kid larry ellison is a big tech billionaire um about buying uh paramount global or buying National Amusements, the holding company that Sumner Redstone built uh, out of a movie theater company, and it controls all of the other assets, even though it doesn't own as much of them. So basically, uh, if if Sherry Redstone sells to Skydance, Skydance would, or or whoever Ellison and his partners are, would be able to control all of the assets that are controlled by Sherry Redstone right now. 
and then presumably they have the power at that point to start selling them off um integrating some selling others off and the people who are the investors in those individual properties actually don't have as much of a say because of the way that the corporate control is sort of put it all in sherry redstone's hands i was struck in reading matt's initial report that like matt's basically like look it's not gonna happen it's grim he says at one point it's not gonna happen um all the other players are bigger they need to find out um, where this company is going and potentially just sell it off, not even like merge it with, but like sell it off for, for parts. Um, he says that it's almost a foregone conclusion that what you'd want to do is take all the content that's on Paramount plus and license it out and just, yeah. and shut it down and, and put that and, and become a more Sony like uh, licensor of content rather than trying to compete with the larger streaming services out there too much debt too far behind to survive. And yeah. the other thought that occurred to me is, and, and occurred to Matt too, he mentions it in his column, um, unclear whether this is like advanced talks that are going to lead to a deal or whether this leaks at this moment in time, because it's also Sherry Redstone saying anyone else, Any, yeah. anyone else interested? Cause we're talking. So if you know, drum up some other business for this, for this entity, but uh, doesn't sound great for the future of Paramount Global. Yeah, I mean, if you talk to um, investment bankers who kind of cover, so like on the equity side, who kind of cover Paramount, they've been, I think, yearning for a while, almost largely as a whole, but obviously I can't speak for everyone that I talk to, um, for, for Paramount to kind of be sold for parts Right. There's almost yeah. this. I mean, unless, of course, they can get a better deal as a whole. But there's this idea of BET was rumored to be about four billion. Showtime, David Nevins, the former um, CEO of Showtime, was going to offer three billion for Showtime with some um, private equity backing. So you know, that's like seven billion dollars right. for declining assets. Turned all the deals down. Right. It's like she can't bear right. to do it. So maybe the answer is hand it to someone else who could bear to do it. Right. I mean, it's very, you know, Kendall Roy, right? It's very much like I'm protecting my father's legacy and, and yeah. I don't want to be the the person that, that gets rid of it all. But um, when you look at Skydance, I know Matt wrote about this. This There is a strong overlap with both the IP that they could use from a theatrical perspective from the Paramount side, which also, by the way, is what Netflix was interested in uh, reportedly years ago. Um, was the Paramount Picture side, which would include the iconic lot. And so there right. is the IP that's really important to a lot of these these different players. I think if Paramount Pictures was up, you'd see a, a pretty strong dash across the board well, yeah. from Amazon, Netflix, Disney. They'd all say that's really strong IP yeah. that we want. I think Apple um, I think Apple would be in on that, too. I think it's you know, a lot of those tech companies, they don't want CBS, right? They don't want CBS. Right. Well, and so, well, so the argument for CBS is football. That's the big sure. argument is if you take CBS, um, but then you have to be in the broadcast business, right? So there's an, yeah. a, a component of um, we want access to Sunday football. Um, and we want some access to that reach, right? Still 200 million homes that you can reach with some of that programming. You could make an argument for some of these players really using that as kind of marketing space, although it is costly. I don't think what they would want is the news divisions. I think they wouldn't want any form, which are still, you know, viable, but I, I don't think there's a lot of appetite for being in news, especially if you're already going to run into FTC uh, oversight. I think the idea of saying like Apple now owns CBS News, I yeah. think it'd be a huge mm -hmm. issue. And so they would kind of devolve that. But I do see where Skyline would come from, then using the rest of it as a licensing play. 
it really depends on that stock, right? It's still going down. It, it, it's it's how low can it go before Sherry's kind of forced to. Right. Um, National Amusements is had to take out a massive uh, loan. I think, I think a few years ago. Like it's been a really rough positioning for them. There's no there's no doubt that this will happen. Um, it's just a matter of how it happens. And honestly, if she's able to get someone who was willing to buy the whole thing and then divest aspects of it again, like news, um, that would be a big win for her. I don't know if it's going to happen, but uh, I do think that Skydance potential partnership where he can go, you know, Larry can go ask his dad, uh, Larry, where David they can, can ask, ask he can, Larry, yeah. David can ask Larry for, you know, a couple billion and it's not even going to dent Larry's pocketbook. That does give him the advantage whether or not the deal makes sense long term is for much smarter yeah. equity analysts to, to talk but about, but it's a, I, it's a fun company. I kind of get it though, that like, like you said, Sherry Redstone doesn't want to be the one who tears apart the company that her father built and that she actually expended a lot of effort to get back together because it was, remember it was Viacom and CBS uh, and Paramount, right? Like it, it's all been kind of pushed back together with, by her, Maybe she doesn't want to break it apart. Maybe she had grand visions that it was going to be worth more, but now it's actually kind of falling uh, falling apart. So you sell out. Uh, from an investment standpoint, it is fascinating in that you are, you are capable of uh, auctioning it off for parts. Your investors may not be happy with you, but you have the control, which is also, you know, just because of the way it's structured. And I, I think you're right. If you believe that it's worth more than the sum of its parts... Or worth more as separate parts than it is on its own. I, I guess I should put it that way. You can actually get benefit in taking parts of it off that people are like, eh, I don't want to buy the whole thing, right? But they want to buy little parts and you make it work. And maybe you take the remnants and you you know, spin it out on its own and like, good luck, right? And put it out there as CBS or whatever. And like, good luck, broadcast network, enjoy. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, there's there's something there. I, I find it... I find it um, sad that it's come to this on one level but like it also feels inevitable that it would come to this that they can't all make it when we first started talking about the streaming era and the gold rush and all that we always said it's a game of musical chairs <laughs> they're gonna keep taking away chairs and like it, that's gonna happen you you cannot have this many players so um the idea that somebody who's got a studio could say you know what we like the studio business we're gonna take this studio and make a part of our studio and licensed content to everybody else and we're going to stay in that business and we're not going to we're going to shut down our streamer and that's going to be it um i was kind of uh thinking i had been thinking all along that would be more like somebody would just who with a streamer would just take it over but yeah it, it, it would be interesting to see if they've just instead let the content scatter to the winds to the highest bidder make more money that way probably i don't know it's a uh, it's it's sad in a sense because it's kind of the end of the era and that I feel like in the early days, Let's Moonvis actually was smart at being so aggressive in launching CBS All Access back in the day. But the fact is, uh, you know, the reach that Paramount and CBS had was not uh, not great to begin with. And when they, the two sides were brought together, you know, it 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 kind of saddled one with the other and that was Sherry Redstone's doing. And so here we are. 
But mm-hmm. uh, as a as a Star Trek fan, I just have that moment of like, oh boy, what now? Right? Because like, I feel like Star Trek is one of those things that has actually uh, come back and performed well on TV in the streaming era. They've had some success. Picard yes. and Strange New Worlds both hit the Nielsen top ten. It's actually been pretty good. But you do have that moment where, as a as a Star Trek fan, you think, yeah, but what if it was on Netflix? Right? <laughs> like, yeah, it might be a a global hit. And it, some of it was on Netflix International, just not in the U.S. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it's a, it's a, it, you're right. The lot, the legacy of that brand name, like there's a lot there that, yeah. that, you know, even if you don't want to own CBS TV stations, there's a lot in there. So I guess we'll watch it, but it's sad to see it all kind of falling apart, but it, it seems inevitable at this point. Yeah. Uh, before we go, a couple quick letters. Just quick letters. Letters. Uh, Jared wrote in to say this week, uh, this was last week, the MLB winter meetings, the Seattle Mariners seem to have indicated their budget has shrunk, shrunk since the beginning of the offseason, triggering a few cost-saving trains and put serious questions about the team's ability to build their team into a contender. The reason for this is reduced revenue from Root Sports, their regional sports network. Um, thanks for the show. Thank you, Jared. Yeah, this is this is the ongoing story. We'll keep watching it. It's sort of mm-hmm. happening team by team. Every market is different. Uh, the Dodgers are happy to pay for Shohei Otani because they are in an enormous media market and they also have a an enormous RSN deal. But even if they lost it, they're in a the second largest market in the U.S. They're going to be okay. But uh, smaller markets, this RSN thing. I mean, all the owners of these teams are billionaires. They can afford to run it at a loss if they want to, but they didn't get to be billionaires by losing money. So it's going to be really interesting to see the moves that get made. And we see that with the Padres trading Juan Soto was a similar thing where they were, they were trying to save money because they don't have their RSN anymore at all. And they're going to, that's a, as we said, I think last time, that's like a $30 million shortfall right there on their budget that they have to address immediately, essentially. So this is going to keep happening. This is what Jason and I have been talking about, right? Which is yeah. this idea that eventually it will, it, not just eventually, now it is, hit players. It'll start to hit who they can have on their roster, yeah. who they can go after. It'll it will impact salaries, the whole thing. It will, it will impact uh, audience enjoyment of certain teams. It will mm-hmm. impact where audiences want to spend their time, which will then further impact the fracturing of um, engagement on certain networks within certain teams, within certain direct-to-consumer services. So the MLB more than any other league because the nba has an rsn situation right um yeah, uh, the, and, and the nhl does and the but nhl the nhl the nhl found a really strong package with disney um the nba is currently shopping a bunch of or i think they're next to their shopping yeah. i can't remember mm-hmm. they're shopping up for their deals um which the rsns i'm sure will be a part of and um or at least will be part of the conversation i should say and uh but the mlb is the most tied to it from team revenue and also overall league standpoint and so i think you've got the mlb where there's been rumors that they kind of want to bring a lot of the rsns in or a lot of the the regional teams in-house and then produce a streaming platform that they then own the rights to and it's kind of a unified service but um that reach is relatively low and we don't really know what the cost of it will be and so it's, it's a complicated issue but i think to jason's point i would expect to see a lot more of this and as it really starts impacting the players i would end the salaries and also um, potential trades i would start to see i would wait to see the the, the uh, unions the player unions really start to pick up and kind of talk about this yeah there's going to be um baseball is going to have i mean they had they had their lockout um last year 
and and their contract is going to be up again next year and, and it this is going to be part of the conversation and the the owners are going to cry poverty the players are really reluctant and that's an understatement to do something like a salary cap the NFL has had a lot of success with revenue sharing and pooled pooled revenue but the problem is the NFL has only national deals and so much of baseball inventory is regional right. and i i have a hard time what i do wonder sometimes is if this pulls up the in baseball up the chain to where the bottom 30 you know is 30 teams the bottom 25 teams are all hurting and the top 5 are fine um I do wonder if at some point the poorer owners and I again the real sarcastic quotes around poorer but uh cuz they're billionaires uh might go and say you know what we we can't just have this be that New York, LA, Chicago, maybe San Francisco have all the money and we have n- none of the money. And is there a a real restructuring where they start poking their noses into the TV revenue? in every region and pooling it at a level that they haven't done yet. I don't know if there's any pooled um, TV revenue in local markets already, but like the NFL has for people who don't know this, I mean, the NFL America's uh, most loved league is, uh, is all socialism. You get all the TV money is just split among all 32 teams. That's it. Just down the middle. It doesn't matter if you're in New York or LA, there are some ancillary benefits from the stadiums and all that. And, but like the TV money, if you're in Jacksonville or you're in New York city, you get the same amount of TV money and it's worked for the NFL. I'm sure the owner of the Dodgers and the owner of the Yankees and the owner of the Mets would not appreciate sharing a lot of money with Seattle and the Las Vegas A's. And there is some, there is a little bit of revenue sharing in baseball, but not very much of it. So I do wonder if that's going to keep happening. Um, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it, but yes, sports are going to get distorted. The NBA thing, like they may get a lot of money. They may not, or they may get a lot of money, but uh, everybody is supplementing that with their regional money that some of the teams are not going to have anymore. And that's going to have impacts. It's just, it it is. And, and sports, is always connected to TV money, but it's being, uh, and college football is the same way. Like it's just been incredibly disruptive and it's not ending soon. It's going to get more disruptive before it gets stable again. So right. hang on everybody. That's your little mini sports corner. Um, one last letter from Ella and she writes, I've loved your recent take on the future of streaming OSs. I'm a longtime Apple TV user and use that landing page as my new TV guide. As you mentioned, Netflix not included on that screen in Apple's ecosystem. Is this a hold up on Netflix's end or Apple's end? Are these screens, uh, as these screens become more important, can we expect to see this change? I have a little bit of an answer here, which is yes, it is both. Uh, Apple wants a certain amount of data from Netflix because they need to be able to track what you watch on Apple's platforms on Netflix. They want Netflix to do what all these other apps do, which is say, I just watch this thing, which lets Apple say, you know, it's in Europe next. And here's some other things you might want to watch, but it's aggregating it at that top level outside of Netflix. And Netflix is like, no, we don't want anybody to ever think of anything outside of Netflix. So they don't want to share that detail with Apple. They do share some data on other platforms. Um, They are now putting out spreadsheets. I wonder if at some point here, Netflix and Apple will finally bury the hatchet and share some sort of information that they are both powerful, obstinate companies 
And I think both of them think that the other one is being harmed more by their absence than the other one is. So here we are, and it's been years now, and it it, it absolutely degrades the Apple TV platform experience to not have Netflix on it. But I will also say it absolutely reduces how much I use Netflix because I don't see it with all the other stuff that's mixed around in Apple's TV app. Surely there's a solution here, but that would require the confident, arrogant, very successful executives of these two companies to talk and make a deal. I hope they do. I would say that the court ruling recently, and although this is slightly different um, with Epic and Google, I think speaks a lot to what, what might happen with a lot of the storefronts and access to information and um, some of the monopolization that occurs, that's a word, occurs, occurs within a digital storefront and how it impacts a lot of some of these subscription apps or some of these apps in general. And so to, to Jason's point, there's been this long war between Netflix and Amazon about, excuse me, Netflix and Apple about, you know, Apple selling Netflix and 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 uh, net, them taking 15 to 30% of signups. Right. And then especially as ads come into play for Apple, what about ad inventory and Netflix has ads. So those conversations are really complicated at a core business um, standpoint. And as of right now, to Jason's point, Netflix doesn't need it. Like Netflix is fine. This has a scale. I do think, you know, you have someone like Ted Sarandos saying um, that by 2030, there'll be 500 million CTV users. And in his mind, that means there is more streaming. It's pure streaming. But in my mind, that also means that it's harder to choose. And therefore, you are more dependent on the interface to recommend stuff to you. These interfaces take, uh, I forget the acronym, but they effectively take screenshots of what you're watching. Um, not It's not like your personal information. It's, it's to then better recommend titles yeah. based on kind of what you are watching. Yeah, that's smart so TV that way to, that's actually like detecting what content you're watching by looking at what what's on its screen and then using right. that to build a profile. Yeah. Right. And Which so Apple doesn't as, do, but Apple does this other thing that is the, you know, it's it's building up what you're watching because the apps tell it what you're watching. Right. And so as that kind of continues and as that proliferates and as that becomes the main gateway for attention and then further engagement, I think you will start to see Netflix start to work a little bit more with companies like Apple. But there's a lot of very basic um, revenue sharing or lack of revenue sharing, I suppose, um, hurdles that have to be jumped through first. Yeah. So I, I would not expect it anytime soon. I, I will say this is not directly related to Apple's policies about um, in-app revenue and things like that. It's a separate issue, but you're right. It may be held up because of the conversations about their relationship and, and uh, you know, they've been in, they've been out and all of that. Um, they could do this. You know, my understanding is this was a decision that was made at some point where Netflix felt very strongly that they just didn't want to share data with Apple about what what people were watching on Netflix on Apple's platforms, which is kind of a weird thing because it's just on Apple's platforms. And I, I wonder if Netflix monitors to see if usage of Netflix is suppressed on Apple platforms versus other platforms, because that would show them whether this is really an issue or not. Uh, you know, personally, it is absolutely an issue for me, but maybe it's not. And and it goes back to our very first point in this episode, Julia, which is Netflix has some lines it doesn't want to cross. And until it needs to, feels it needs to for some reason, it just won't. Even if they are leaving money on the table, they are leaving viewership time on the table. Apple TV set-top boxes are also the least used. They are they're not um, Fire TV sticks. They are not Android TV sets. They are, yeah. It's 
So for Netflix, yeah, I mean, my, my Apple, counter would be it's a premium audience. It's like the 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 cream of the crop of no, the no, I, streaming I, box I don't, audience. But I, I yes. don't disagree. But also, it's a it's a low percentage. It is. Of, it of is consumers for sure. Although although I will say it's not just Apple TV, right? Because there's a TV app on the iPhone and the iPad and on the Mac, and they all also talk to third party apps using this yeah. API. Yeah, and Netflix isn't in there. Um, and and it, it's frustrating when I'm on an iPad too. And there, are, if you start to aggregate all the people who watch TV on an iPad or an iPhone and on a on a Mac and on Apple TV, it starts to become maybe relevant for. But again, Netflix also doesn't do theatrical, and they're also not licensing their shows. And Apple is hard headed about all sorts of things too. And that's that's the thing that gives me the the least confidence that they will ever make a deal. Is just like these are two companies that kind of know what they want, and they want everybody else to bend to their will, and they are. Uh, that makes it hard for them to make a deal, uh, whether it's yeah. financial or whether it's data. So I don't know, unless the data is less important than it used to be for Netflix. I don't think it is, but all right. That brings us to the end of this episode of downstream. Um, if you do have a question for us, uh, feedback, anything else, go to downstreamfeedback.com. Love to your mothers. We love hearing from you. And uh, if you have not yet, please consider subscribing to Downstream Plus. This is a full-sized episode for everybody. Everybody gets the same episode. But the only way to hear the complete version of our previous episode, our next episode, and and so on and so on, is to subscribe. You can go to downstream.plus to subscribe and support the show. You can find Julia at parrotanalytics.com and, of course, on puck.news. You can find me at sixcolors.com, and I'm on many other podcasts here at Relay and at theincomparable.com. And that brings us to the end. Uh, until next time, Julia, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy Holidays to everybody out there. We'll be back before New Year's with another episode. But until then, Julia, say goodbye and Happy Holidays, Merry Christmas and all of that. Ho, ho, ho. Happy Holidays, everyone. Thank you for listening. Yes, thank you. See you one more time this year. <laughs>